0: There were screams carved on the air of his room. Vital fluids dried deep within his mattress. Whole lives sewn into the lining of his pillows, to be taken out and savored later. Poppy Z. Bright, self-made man. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast focusing on the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm one of your hosts, Stephanie.
1: And I'm your other host, Rachel. Joining us today, we have Chelsea. You may know her on YouTube as The Reading Outlaw or on her podcast, Not Now, I'm Reading. Together, we will be discussing inclusive queer horror on this episode of Books in the Freezer.
0: This episode of Books in the Freezer is brought to you by Audible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without audiobooks, so if you want some spooky stories told by some familiar voices, try Stephen King's Pet Cemetery read by Dexter's Michael C. Hall, or The Dead Zone, read by James Franco, or podcast favorite, Joe Hill's Nosferatu, read by Kate Mulgrew. For a free audiobook and 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com slash booksinthefreezer. Happy listening! So hi, Chelsea. Thank
1: you so much for joining us.
2: Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I love horror. I don't ever get to talk about it as much as <laughs> I want to. I'm so excited. I was thinking it's
1: great to have another podcaster on the show because you, of course, have your own show that you do, Not Now I'm Reading, which is a really great name, by the way. I'm kind of jealous you snapped that one up.
2: Thank you. I wish I could take credit. I can't. That one was all K. K is a name genie, and she came up with that one. It's all her.
1: Well, she is a genie because that's pretty great. And I think I describe your podcast like you talk about a whole variety of genres and a lot of fan fiction and probably everything from like romance to science fiction to fantasy. You don't really normally talk about horror on your podcast though.
2: No, we have a general kind of policy where we don't read any straight white dudes. And so sometimes, especially in like thriller and horror and mystery, that can be a kind of a challenge to find things that step outside that. Yes. Which is why I'm so glad we're doing this episode, but that's why that and Kay we have like different tastes in horror and she doesn't like body horror stuff and that's just sensitivity is so we don't do enough of it. So I'm very excited. Can you tell how excited I am I'm like talking a <laughs> lot.
1: So have you always read horror? Like did you read it growing up or is it something you got into more
2: as an adult? No, I've always loved horror. I didn't always start reading it. I started watching it. My mom is super into horror. She was always super into the Disney villains. We watched like Silence of the Lambs and the first Friday the 13th and the first Nightmare on Elm Street like a lot during family movie night at my house. Retrospectively is maybe odd and like (laughs) maybe kind of explains some things, but like was totally fine at the time. And so I just always grew up really into like horror narratives. And then of course, when I started reading, and I was reading really fast, and I was reading through a lot of the young adult stuff at kind of an earlier level, the librarian in town handed me a Stephen King book and then I went home and showed it to my mom and she was like oh you could have gotten that here and then she showed me her whole shelf of Stephen King books and from there I took off and never looked back which I'm sure matches a lot of people's stories I feel like Stephen King is probably a fairly popular name
0: yeah that's so awesome that your mom had a whole shelf of that
2: Mm -hmm. She had that. She had William Blady's The Exorcist. She had Jaws. She had a couple of like collections of like best of horror stuff. She's always just been very into kind of the strange and unusual. So taking after mom, I guess. (laughs) In the best way. In the best way.
1: I'm just relieved to finally have a guest that actually got to read horror growing up because pretty much everyone else we've talked to, and us included, had parents that were like, no horror, no horror. And like, Stephanie was like, not allowed to read Stephen King until you were what, like out of the house or out of high school. Yeah. So it's so nice to have a different narrative for once on this podcast.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for better or for worse, my mom, and I kind of subscribe to a similar philosophy now that I'm a parent, was very much of the mind of like, when you read the things that are too kind of above you will kind of naturally go above you and the things that you get you will get and my mom and dad both had a very good like open door policy for asking questions and I was pretty good from self-selecting early on like things that would and wouldn't work for me when it came to horror I mean I did a fairly intense horror burst and then kind of moved on to something else but it's always been something that I've come back to so when
0: you do come back to it what kind of horror stories do you find yourself drawn to
2: Ooh, okay, so I talk about this with my husband a lot because he and I both really love horror, but we can't really ever do the same thing. We're on kind of polar opposites. So I tend to think of in the widest brushstrokes possible, there's kind of two horror stories. There are the supernatural horror stories and those the things that the universe can kind of do to you. And then there are the things that people do to each other horror stories. And I love the things that people do to each other horror stories. <laughs> So serial killers, occult books, books that really get into the evolution of how somebody can do things that are incredibly evil, because I think that the human capacity for evil is one of the most terrifying things on the planet.
0: Oh, definitely.
2: So because of that, and because a lot of that can kind of hide in plain sight almost. And I think this probably, you know, comes from those Stephen King roots, but there's something so delicious about that, like very creepy Edward Scissorhands cookie cutter, small town Americana that's also hiding that like deep level of something like disturbing. (laughs) So all of those things kind of tied together just are where that's my wheelhouse when it comes to horror stuff. Do you also like true crime? Like reading true crime? Yeah, yeah. Like the overlap <laughs> between like horror and true crime and like thriller books all kind of share like a similar space on like the Venn diagram for me.
0: I have a harder time with true
2: crime. I mean, yeah, it's not for everybody, man. And like, you know, trigger warnings for all of the things all the time. <laughs> Just like everywhere. I didn't
0: sleep for four nights after I'll be gone
2: in the dark. Oh my god, I love- <laughs> I just finished listening to it on audio and it's so good. Oh, did you? I'm so addicted to it. It's so good. My favorite murder podcast. Oh, yeah. uh, I'll be gone in the dark. Criminal, which is another kind of like almost serial kind of podcast, but looks at people on death row and the crimes they committed. It's just like, ugh. And we'll talk about it like at the very end on like other things that we're super into, but like we'll come back to that because it's a moment that I'm having right now for sure.
0: Yes, I want to hear more about that. (laughs) So, are there any kind of horror stories you avoid?
2: A lot of the things that I avoid in horror are the same kind of things that I avoid in like general fiction. I don't love super like discriminatory or generally awful like storylines. I really don't like <laughs> stories that focus on crimes against women, like rape based horror, but that's a lot of what happens. So finding the balance of that and the line with that is really tough. I don't read a ton of like ghost stories or like exorcism stories, not because I don't like them. I just don't particularly find them very scary. So if I'm going to read something like horror, I'm going to want to pick up something like that I actually think is going to scare me. And that's usually not going to do the trick.
1: Well, in that case, that kind of leads nicely into our next question that we keep turning around to our guests lately. And we always get asked, what's the scariest book that we've ever read, which is pretty much the most horrible question.
2: Yeah, that's not a fair question ever.
1: Not at all, (laughs) which is why I want to say, so Chelsea, what's the scariest book that you've ever read? Okay,
2: so I have two. Well, okay, two and a half. The first one is a book that I heard about on the Literary Disco podcast, and they described it as the scariest book they've ever read. It's The Girl Next Door by Jack Ketchum. And of course, I heard that and I immediately was like, well, that the, the gauntlet has been thrown. And so I like immediately bought it on Kindle and read it in like two days. It is. Very disturbing. It is about the story of a girl and her disabled sister who are basically kidnapped by a group of local boys and kept in a basement and put through all of the incredibly horrible, terrible things you can imagine happening in that particular scenario. I don't necessarily know that I would recommend it. It Uh, is really gross and crosses a lot of really big like content boundaries for a lot of people understandably but it also scared the shit out of me like it was absolutely terrifying and then the next one that I read is more of like a psychological thriller it's called The Mind of Winter by Lori Kasichka and it is about a woman who is basically trapped with her surly teenage daughter on a snow day kind of like snow bound into her house And her daughter keeps being really reclusive and withdrawing from her. And it's kind of as the day goes on driving her more and more kind of getting her frustrated and getting her anxiety boiling that her daughter just won't talk to her. And at the end, they kind of have this blow up and some things happen. And I won't spoil it because it's probably the best literary twist that I've maybe ever read. It's a book. I read it in 2013 for the first time. And Mm -hmm. I still think about it probably every couple of months. It's incredibly well-crafted in the way that the ending is done. And I just don't want to say anymore because I don't want to spoil it. And then the half is a short story. So I love short fiction just in general. And I think that horror works really well in short fiction. I feel like there's a lot of like narrative tension that gets built really well in short fiction that lends itself to horror. And Mm -hmm. the scariest short story I've ever read is actually a Ray Bradbury short story. And I don't think a lot of people would necessarily think of it as a horror story, but it is one of those things where it's like, Horror is deeply individual. So Mm -hmm. to me, the idea of this story, it's Kaleidoscope, which is the story of basically a rocket ship that is hit by an asteroid and the astronauts are catapulted off into space and five of them survive. And the story is basically the story of them talking to each other as they slowly drift out into space until they're outside of like radio range. (laughs) And just the idea of being conscious and cognizantly drifting off into the forever nothingness of space, just knowing that there's nothing else you can do but drift forever, like it is deeply, deeply disturbing to me on like a really intrinsic level that I think like, the first time I read it was just like, I had to like put the illustrated man down which is the collection that this is in and like walk away and just be like oh man that was incredibly intense for me in a way that I kind of wasn't expecting so those are probably the two and a half scariest things oh my gosh that kaleidoscope story
0: like gave me chills now <laughs> I haven't read it but just you talking about it gave me the chills so I think it has horror all over it for sure oh my
2: god it's so intense guys
0: <laughs> <laughs> like that for me would be a freezer one and Stephanie literally just was messaging and saying we need to read horror The sudden space I rewatched Event Horizon. I'm like, is Mm -hmm. there more horror set in space? Because I need that in my life.
2: (laughs) I haven't run across a ton of it. So if you find it, let me know. But if that kind of like psychological level gets to you at all. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it because it's terrifying.
0: Yeah, if we do an episode, I think it might end up being mostly short Mm -hmm. fiction. But
2: oh, love it. Yeah, I would love to listen to that. Make a note of that. That'd be a great episode.
0: And I am adding that Mind of Winter to my TBR right now.
2: Yeah, I want to know the ending. And it's not super long. That was another one I read really fast. So I definitely recommend it.
0: Now we want to segue into the specific episode topic of queer horror, which we're using to represent the persons on the quilt bag spectrum, both in terms of sexual orientation and gender identity. You know, Chelsea, as a book reviewer, you go out of your way to find and promote queer literature, which made you a fantastic guest to have us cover this topic. Uh, we're hoping you can provide our listeners with some insight into how they can also read more diversely. Why do you think people should read queer horror?
2: Well, first of all, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. That's very kind. I love queer stories. Queerness speaks to a very specific aspect of my identity that I really like to see reflected in fiction. I think people should read queer horror because I think people should read queer stories across the board. I think people should read outside of their own experience. Sometimes that feels like A little bit of a no-brainer thing to say, but also it is like incredibly not. And it is also an idea that I think constantly needs reinforcing that whatever your particular experience is, reading outside of that will always be helpful in expanding your understanding of your fellow human beings and your life experience and all of that. So whatever genre you're reading in, I guarantee you there are queer people writing and publishing in it. And horror is no exception to that.
1: I think that's pretty sound reasoning. And there's also the idea that what we consume and that where we put our dollars when it comes to buying books also reflects back to the publishers. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, if we actually are reading and talking about queer horror books, then publishers are more likely to then, you know, seek out and actually publish more diverse stories.
2: Absolutely. I think you get a lot of times into that cyclical problem of publishing saying, well, nobody's reading it, so we're not going to publish it. So they don't publish it so no one can buy it or it becomes infinitely harder to find and buy. So then obviously they can't be reading it. So it gets kind of into that cycle. So I think that was a really great way to put it. We kind of vote with our dollars and we let our dollars speak for what we want to see. So if we want to see more queer storylines and queer horror, we need to show them that with the things we buy and the media we consume.
1: And I feel like we should mention just because someone's going to ask afterward. That, of course, we're going to be talking about diverse horror in other means such as race in a different episode. Just because there is way too many different facets of Mm -hmm. diversity for us to try to squish all in one episode. Even for this, we had a lot of different thoughts about things we wanted to cover just talking about queer horror. Because, of course, we're talking about sexual identity and gender. So if anyone's saying, well, Mm -hmm. why aren't you talking about African-American authors? Things like that. Well, like I said, we got plenty of episodes still to come.
2: And I'm very much looking forward to all of those. I think it's wonderful to point out the different aspects in a more of a deep dive way and really give people different resources. So, kudos, ladies, well done.
0: And I think horror is one of those genres that people point to and say, like, oh, it's just white dudes. Mm -hmm. It's good to have episodes where we point out that no, it's not. Agreed. Considering I literally
2: said that like not 15 minutes ago. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're fine because it's true. And if you're going to go into your average bookstore and pull a horror book off the shelf, your odds of pulling a cis straight white dude off the shelf are infinitely higher in horror than they even are in some other genres not to say that it's like great across the board in general but different genres vary kind of in terms of that so
1: if you go to my local bookstore 50 percent chance that horror book you're picking off the shelf is specifically stephen king so i will agree with that yeah that's fair
2: I would bet that at least like 25 of those other ones are probably Joe Hill, too. So like,
1: does that count? Yeah, it's all in the family.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Besides listening to this podcast episode, what are some ways that readers can find out about queer fiction?
2: I think that when it comes to following any kind of like specific aspect of an identity, that finding authors that you like is going to be your friend. I think obviously, in general, you can always start by Googling book lists or recommended lists or short stories lists. If you just type in, you know, genre X, you know, queer stories or some combination of that, you'll usually get a jumping off point. From there, you can then start to kind of read the authors that resonate with you, that tell stories that you like. And then I highly recommend going and searching out those authors on Twitter, especially if you're finding them through short fiction. A lot of those people are currently constantly publishing. And not only that, they're pointing out the things that they are reading. So kind of through that spider web, you can find other authors who may jive with you, may not, but you'll find the other things that will inevitably speak to you kind of within that. There's a specific magazine that I want to link to, and I'm going to talk about a couple of the stories that are in it when we get to our specific recommendations. But Nightmare Magazine, which is a fantastic magazine just in general for horror short fiction, did a special issue in October of 2015 called Queers Destroy Horror. And I mean, the title, it says it all right there, folks. It's queer authors publishing queer horror stories. It's fiction, it's poetry, it's a little bit of nonfiction, it's everything. But it's super great. So if nothing else, you can start there. There's, you know, a dozen authors and you can go and find them and read their books and see the things that they mention as inspirations to them and that's kind of my favorite way to do it it can be a little bit trickier sometimes than just going to like a list and finding it but sometimes when you come to some of these more marginalized identities especially non-visible identities it becomes a little bit more word of mouth and going kind of author to author that I've had the best success with and then the only other thing I would say and I kind of talked a little bit about it earlier but don't be afraid to look outside of things that are specifically tagged as being horror Horror, a lot of the times, because it's a little bit of a smaller genre, gets lumped in with like spec fic in general. So a lot of times you'll see like SFF and horror. And so if it says spec fic or if it looks like it might even be borderline in the area, because there are a lot of crossovers between like science fiction and horror and some of those like specific kind of things. So Uncanny Magazine usually does some good ones or Apex Magazine will do some good ones, but they publish not just specifically in horror. So if you're searching, you may kind of miss them in your tags.
1: Yeah, you're always really good for reading the magazines. That's something I need to do a little bit more of.
2: Uh, I'm really good at buying the magazines. <laughs> I am not always really great at reading them on time. I try to always read an Ug Candy because it comes out every two months. So I have like plenty of time to read it. But like, even that doesn't always happen.
1: Well, your intention is there. You're putting your dollars at least where you plan
2: to. Exactly. Thank you, Rachel. I'm voting with my dollars.
1: Exactly and i found that too that when it comes to other genres that once i started to get a feel for what was horror in my opinion I'm like horror is everywhere it just gets labeled as everything but horror like now that i'm yes. reading more horror i read thrillers and i'm like oh my gosh this is horror why are they labeling this as thrillers and maybe it's a little bit that the genre gets i don't know less attention it's for a while, I think it fell out of favor in the publishing world, so... I think so. I think a lot of horror authors kind of hid in other genres, mm-hmm. and I like to think that now there's kind of been a resurgence, so at least in my corner of the internet, so I'd like to see more of them kind of taking back that horror label and putting it back on those books.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think that's really true.
1: So because you read a lot of different genres, I mentioned you read like science fiction, fantasy, romance. Do you think it's harder to find queer representation horror compared to those other ones?
2: Yes, only because in my experience, horror seems to be one of the few genres that doesn't get tagged with a ton of like sub genres. Like there's psychological horror and there's thriller, which is sometimes with horror, sometimes more with like mystery. But for example, you can have a space opera or you can have specifically queer romance section where you can put the books together and go in. But horror doesn't really do that. And like you were saying, Rachel, In a brick and mortar store, you can be lucky to get a handful of titles in a horror section, period, let alone then broken down further into like queer horror or body horror or splatter horror or whatever your particular flavor is. So I think it's more difficult to find only in that they're not as clearly labeled. I think that the stories are obviously being written and being published. I just think genres are a weird kind of made-up thing and publishing does weird kind of made-up things with them sometimes. So when it comes to sub-genres of horror, I just think it can be tougher. And so with
0: representation, just because a book has gay or lesbian characters doesn't exactly mean it has good representation. So what can readers do to find out if a book has good representation?
2: I mean, I think the first thing is just to go by how you would judge almost any other book as to whether or not it feels like a true experience. And this is part of the difficulty in the discussion, right, is that it's kind of in part about a little bit of feeling. Usually if you read a character who feels like a cookie-cutter representation, there's something that pings in your gut that tells you that. My general go-to if you want to make sure that you're reading a book that has at least a good chance of being good representation is to go with a book that's own voices – Which I will go ahead and use this as my caveat point to talk about something we made notes on a little bit later on, which is the difficulty in doing that in queer media or queer fiction, because obviously queerness, sexual orientation, gender representation or orientation... Those aren't things that you can necessarily identify just by looking at somebody. You may think you can based on your own preconceived notions, but really you never can. So unless an author has made it very clear on their own social media, their own publishing pages, in their own work, that they are an own voices author and they are writing to that part of their experience, I think it can be tempting to want to ask, especially if it's a piece of queer media from a person that you has not necessarily come out or has not necessarily confirmed. But I think it's really important to never, ever, ever do that. (laughs) This is my little soapbox PSA that I get on whenever this comes up, which is it is always important to read own voices representation and own voices media. But your desire and want to do that never trumps somebody's ability or right to stay in the closet and only out themselves at the time of their choosing which may seem like a silly thing to say. But unfortunately, in the recent past, it's happened more often than not that authors in various genres have had to uh, reveal certain things about themselves because of demand to know whether or not they are writing accurate own voices portrayals. How do we fix it? I hear you asking. (laughs) 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 I don't know. I wish I did. For me, what I do is I look to members of the population who are being represented and ask them what they think. And I think that Everyone's going to feel a little differently, but you can usually get a pretty general like beat on the pulse, so to speak, as to if you read a story that has a, let's say, trans character and a bunch of trans people come back and tell you that that story is super problematic, it's probably pretty problematic and it's probably not great representation. And so listening to members from those populations who have an opinion on the representation in the book is a good way to navigate that, especially if you're not sure if the author is writing from an own voices experience. You won't know if they're writing from their own personal knowledge, but you will at least have a kind of barometer from the community as to whether or not that is a well-represented piece of fiction or well-represented piece of the experience. So that's what I do.
1: And so if you were interested in reading a book, would you maybe put out a tweet and say, has anyone read this? What do you think? Or do something like that?
2: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And usually reviewers are more than happy to tell you. I feel like especially people who are from members of marginalized identities are more than happy to share with you what they think. And more usually are more than on the lookout for those kinds of things. So if you have a piece of media that you want to read, you've heard that it contains, you know, a bisexual main character, but you're coming from a heterosexual perspective and you want to yeah, just put out a tweet, ask on Goodreads, ask on who whatever your kind of bookish social media is. Mine has always been Twitter. (laughs) I feel like that gets the widest and quickest response and just say, hey, uh, has anybody read this book? I'm wondering if the bisexual characters in it are represented well. Can anyone from that community tell me? Or has anybody read it who would have experience, who would know? And that kind of thing is just a much safer way to navigate it. And again, some authors feel totally comfortable and will just put in their bio that they are you know, identifying with any different group that they are more than willing to tell you. But if they have not told you, just don't ask. There are other ways to find out. And it, the worst case scenario, you move on. And if you're just not sure, you can read it and take the risk. Or uh, my advice would just be to move on because there's always something else to read.
1: I found this to be probably the trickiest part of preparing for this episode. Because like you said, if a book isn't clearly marked his own voices, you're trying to decide, you know, is this... Yeah, good representation. And typically what I've heard is people saying it's really the treatment of characters. So in another genre, I've heard it like, oh, well, if the only gay character in this piece of media is killed off right away, then Mm -hmm. typically, you know, that's thought to be, you know, not very good representation. But I struggle with the fact that I enjoy a good, say, slasher. Mm -hmm. And so if all the characters are dying, if they also kill off some of the gay characters or trans characters... Does that or does that not, you know, translate to being good or bad representation, things like that? Because I find it tricky Mm because most of the characters in the books I read die.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things with the field in particular. And different people will tell you different things. I am of the opinion that if the character's death is not necessarily related to their sexual orientation or is not necessarily related to anything having to do with that aspect of their personality. And instead, like you said, is just one of everybody that's dying because everybody dies. Like that is a different purpose. It's the difference between having females in your story who are killed and having women in your story who are fridged. For people who don't know that term, who are specifically killed to further the emotional storyline and emotional development of a male character one is acceptable and one is not and one is good representation and one is not so it's about like you were saying just kind of the collective and cohesive experience there are obviously some stereotypes that just are kind of always going to stick out as being kind of untrue (laughs) And unfortunately, identifying them is just a matter of speaking to members of those communities and kind of having them pointed out to you because you won't know them. You won't know them until you know them. I don't know all of them. I'm always asking. I identify as cis bisexual. So there are a lot of aspects of the queer experience that I don't have access to. And I have found in general, as long as you're willing to approach it with respect and a legitimate sense of curiosity and kindness, people are usually more than willing to tell you or point you in the right direction if you happen to be heading down the wrong one.
1: So how about let's switch over and talk about some actual book recommendations and we want to talk about some short fiction first because that would be one of my recommendations is if you're looking for queer horror, I think all three of us found that short fiction was a really good place to start. There's just quite a bit out there and it's also a really good way to kind of sample authors work without necessarily committing to reading a super long novel. So I want to start by mentioning a short story that I read called Yes, No, Goodbye by Christy DeMeester. This is a short story in the Tales from a Talking Board anthology that's edited by Rossi Lockhart. At this point, Stephanie's used to me, I pretty much use every excuse to talk about Christy DeMeester on the podcast because she's one of my favorite female horror authors. This particular story follows a young woman who is in love with her childhood best friend and of course her friend decides one day to play with a Ouija board and they do. I don't want to give away too much of the plot because it honestly is a short story, but what I like about it is it really is a story about first love, about coming out and coming out specifically to your best friend, which I imagine is a really scary experience because you don't necessarily know whether or not that other person shares your orientation, if they feel the same way and The story does have some darker moments to it, but the darkness doesn't come from the queer representation. Instead, those aspects are just done really nicely. And it just is strangely a feel-good story, which is a strange way to describe a horror story. In terms of scariness, I would put it as room temperature, but I just love it. It was the first time I ever read Christy Meester's work and just sold me on her writing. It's just a beautiful story about two young lesbians in love. So what more
0: can you say about that? Oh, I loved it. That one had, like, very quiet and, like, beautiful romance, I thought.
2: Yes. Yay for happy queer narratives, especially in horror, because who would have thought?
1: That was the other challenge I found trying to pick out stories, is that I really wanted to find not only good representation, but also positive stories that mm-hmm. show, you know, happy People doing happy things and things going well for them because mm-hmm. horror is so much about tragedy. But I feel like there's already a lot of queer narratives that are very focused on tragedy already. So I was like, I want to read about happy people and yeah, people in love. So there you go. I just threw in like a little bit of romance into our horror podcast. Look what you're doing to me, Chelsea. No, that's
2: that's <laughs> wonderful. That's wonderful because that's true. I mean, all aspects of all human experiences, including happy ones, even in horror all the time diversity of narratives it's great guys uh so mine might not be as happy
0: oh <laughs> sorry guys
2: <laughs> we're gonna bring it right back down
1: <laughs> way to go stephanie
0: <laughs> sorry to ruin it guys my story is in the hills the cities this is by clive barker and this is from the books of blood in the first chunk so books one through three And the synopsis for this story is, two gay men, Mike and Judd, take a romantic but strained vacation through Yugoslavia. On their trip, they drive into an isolated area where two cities are performing a ritual that happens every 10 years. They become a bigger part of it than they ever could have imagined. Obviously, this is a short story, so I can't say too much about what's going on but this was one of my favorite stories from the collection the other one was more of a comedic story that I loved but I would say for straight horror this is probably my favorite from the collection. Clive Barker is an out gay man and if you've read his stuff he does not shy away from body horror so that if that is not your thing Probably don't pick this up because Clive Barker does not shy away. (laughs) Warning for
2: Clive (laughs) Barker body horror stuff. Dude, his books are so bonkers. They're so nice. Yeah, Rachel,
0: you would love him.
1: I do not know why I haven't read him yet. That sounds amazing.
0: The One thing I could say about this story is that it is absolutely bonkers. And I honestly would put it in the freezer. Like, it is terrifying.
2: I would back that up. I would agree with that. I remember this story. That's a good Yeah, one. it just goes like, what in the world is happening? A lot of Clive Barker stuff does that, as you are yeah. deeply horrified, but also deeply confused and compelled to keep reading to, like, <laughs> figure out what exactly is happening. Oh, my gosh. Good I have to stuff. read this now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you'll really like it, oh, Rachel. Man. Yeah, I do love me some body horror. Well, speaking of body horror, you'd probably like this one too then. Oh, good. And this one's available online. It's Golden Hair, Red Lips by Matthew Bright. This is one of the ones from the special edition of the magazine that I mentioned earlier, Queers Story Horror, which came out in 2015. The brief synopsis is that it follows a man reminiscing the cruelty of the AIDS epidemic in early 1980s San Francisco as he watches it rip through his community and several of his lovers, leaving him largely untouched as the painting in his attic slowly bears the marks of his survival. You're thinking that probably sounds like a different story then you're right. And we'll talk about it later.
0: <laughs> but the story is
2: full of body horror because it is set during the AIDS crisis. There's a lot of descriptions of the disease and of medical horror and body horror and the ravages that took place during that time. So depending on how sensitive you are to that, this one definitely is like a fridge to freezer. I would put it in the fridge, but I think Kay might put it in the freezer and then like <laughs> toss the freezer out. <laughs> the house and burn it down or something like so just depending on where you're at on that scale I definitely think that it's worth checking out
1: I'll definitely have to put that one on my list so I actually want to recommend a whole short story collection and that's called Fist of the Spider Woman Tales of Fear and Queer Desire edited by Amber Dawn this is actually a Canadian horror book which I always love to sneak some Canadian cool. lit in there Ooh.
2: very cool
1: this a collection of own voices short stories featuring both cis and trans women and I thought the premise behind it just sounded amazing because traditional horror has a long history of doing a terrible job representing women as we discussed earlier so often We as females are either victimized for being sexually active or were painted as evil, seductive women. And so the editor wanted to compile a collection of stories that basically took back these narratives and reverse these toxic traditional narratives and really make them their own. And so each story is a response to two questions posed by the editor. First, she wanted to ask, what do queer women fear the most? And then, what do queer women desire the most? And basically, the whole collection walks the line between horror and erotica. Some of the stories involve prostitution, dead lovers. It's a very dark collection. I mentioned the earlier short story because, again, I wanted that happy representation. And this one very much tells the darker side of the queer experience and just in general of being female, that fear of a lot of the terrible things that can be done to a person. So lots of trigger warnings. You really have to be okay with difficult content. I wouldn't blindly give this one to everyone. In terms of rating, I would definitely put in the freezer with like warnings for sexual assault and rape. There's some really good stories in the collection. I'll just briefly mention Slug by Megan Milk is about a woman who has torture fantasies about her boyfriend. And another one called Saito by Suki Lee, which is about a woman who is held captive by her French landlord, which is my personal favorite. It was very erotic. And I mentioned this to you both over messaging that I typically read during lunch at work. And I was sitting there with my coworkers with my book out. And I'm pretty sure I was turning like three shades of red because yeah. I don't read a lot of erotica. And it was like right in the middle of my work day, you know, I had to talk to clients in five minutes. And I was like, oh my goodness, it
0: got
2: really off. You it know,
1: can be a tough one. That can be a little bit of a tough one. Yeah, so that was interesting for sure. So I like the fact that there was a lot of representation of both lesbians, but also trans women. Some of the stories made references to transitioning or mentioning the hormone drugs that they had to take during that transition period. So I think it's a very inclusive collection, but very dark and yeah, very erotic, which is not normally my thing. So It was an interesting departure. I do enjoy the fact that this podcast really gets me to read outside my comfort zone. So again, that's called Fists of the Spider Woman, Tales of Fear and Queer Desire, edited by Amber Dawn.
2: Awesome. That sounds great. I actually have not heard of that one. So I went ahead and put it on my Goodreads as you were talking about it, because that sounds wonderful. I think you would like it a lot. Yeah, I don't mind reading Erotica at all. Yeah, I know. That's like right (laughs) up your wheelhouse, I think. (laughs) For sure. So the last story I'm going to talk about is another one from Queer Story Horror. Can you tell I'm doing like notes on a theme? I just I really love this as a starting point for a lot of people because I feel like collections compiled like this on a theme. Like you were saying, Rachel, really make for good chance to like kind of dip in and out of several different things exactly this one is Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers by Alyssa Wong you may have heard of it. it won a Nebula Award for Best Short Story and it has kind of branched out beyond just like the horror world you know what I'm saying like kind of that bubble of the genre into like SF and different kind of award genres so it's really really well done Alyssa's fantastic this is basically a twist on the modern vampire Jen survives by feeding off of emotions, specifically off of the negative emotions of the people that she dates. And one night she has a date with a stranger who is thinking incredibly disgusting and evil things about her. He's a murderer and he's thinking about how he wants to murder her and She consumes his energy, and that hit of energy is so powerful to her, that darkness is so powerful to her, that it immediately becomes something that she craves again. So as she's wrestling that, her best friend Aiko is this kind of very quiet and patient woman who is just kind of standing there in Jen's life waiting to be noticed, and Jen is noticing her more and more and also trying to fight that sudden thirst she has to consume and how that is warring with her desire to spend time with Aiko. And it's just so good. Jen gets this vampire ability from her mom. And so she goes home to visit. And there are several layers of familial stuff there, legacy and respecting tradition and navigating your way in a new world. But also there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on because Jen as a bisexual is Thinking about and interacting with the different kinds of thought patterns and energies that she picks up from these different people and what it means for her to largely have dated men and consume this large amount of negative energy from men while at the same time wanting to enter into this relationship. And later on in the story, entering into a different relationship, both with two women. And I don't really want to spoil the end because the kind of relationship dichotomies there become kind of the focus of the end of the story. But the story says a lot of really interesting things about assault. And the way that women process through assault and the power you do or don't have after you become a victim of assault. But working through kind of the both the victimization and the power that can come from going through a recovery of something like that. And so there's a lot of these kind of sub themes that get into so much of that. And that's what I love about horror and queer horror specifically is that it gets into so many of the different aspects of like sexuality and physicality and horror and consent and crossing those lines and where all of that plays. And that's why that idea like we talked about at the beginning of the show of the horrible, horror things that people can do to each other is what gets to me most when I'm reading horror stuff. But yeah, that's Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers by Alyssa Wong. And I love it a whole lot.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing. After we're done
1: recording, I think I'm just going to go online and buy that magazine.
2: Yeah, it's not super expensive. And it's like 250 pages, short fiction, horror, nonfiction. And they also do collections. They did Women Destroy Horror and People of Color Destroy Horror. So if that's something that you're interested in, then you can also go and check both of those out. Nightmare does really great themed collections. I think they're getting ready to do disability destroys. So disabled authors destroying different genres. So I'm excited for that one too.
1: That would be good too. Jeez. You just added, like, how many short stories to my list of things to read.
0: Thanks a lot. I mean, I'd say I'm
2: sorry, but I'm not.
0: I know you're not. (laughs) So transitioning into novels, I wanted to talk about the next book in The Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice, and this is The Vampire Lestat.
2: Stephanie, I love these books so much. You don't even understand. My mom used to read these books all the time. The Vampire Chronicles are some of her favorite books.
0: Yeah, I just got into these recently and I'm like, where have these been all my life?
2: Oh, they're so extra, but they're so good.
0: Well, this is a continuation. This is a series from Interview with the Vampire. So in this sequel, Lestat wakes up in the 80s and basically becomes a rock star. And he reads the Interview with the Vampire, so Louis' account of him in the book. And he decides to tell his side of the story. And it's basically his whole life story, how he came to Paris with his lover, Nicholas, how he was bitten and how he basically had to figure out how to be a vampire and his heartbreaking journey to where we find him at the beginning of the story. And this book gets so much more background on Listat, because he's kind of a brat in the first book and you don't really care about him all that much. <laughs> but in this book, you definitely understand him more. So when this book opens up, he's basically like talking about how he's waking up and he's seeing the environment and how different it is. And he's like, oh, by the way, I just decided to become a rock star. And I was totally here for sexy vampire rock stars. (laughs) But unfortunately, in this book, he kind of starts off with that. And then I would say the whole book is his biography, his life story. And then at the very end, he goes back to present day. So I think If I want more vampire rock star, I might have to continue on with Queen of the Damned. But the story opens up with young Lestat, and he seems to be very open about his relationship with Nicholas, or as he calls him, Nicky, and their move to Paris. And I, at this point, I'm not exactly sure how the relationships work once they become vampires, but I think it's implied that his relationship with Louis in the first one was sensual. And I believe there is mention of relationships with women in other books in the series. Lestat is a bisexual character, but... This was definitely a book I enjoyed. And as I just talked about, I am like wondering, where was this all my life? This would have been huge for me as a teenager.
2: I feel like Anne Rice is one of those books that sometimes people kind of go through like a phase. Yeah. Which like, yes, I did that. (laughs) It was certainly a phase that happened.
0: Yeah. A lot of people that we've had on have talked about their like teenage Anne Rice phase. And I'm just going through it at a later point in my life. (laughs) You're a late bloomer. I would say this is definitely room temperature but
2: it's still really great. Well, speaking of kind of classics, I'm going to go even more like classic classic with my first novel rec and talk about the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. This is the classic story that the first short story that I talked about Golden Hair Red Lips is based on. Like I said, if it sounded familiar, it's that's why. <laughs> For those of you who didn't read it in your junior English class, Dorian Gray is basically about a man who makes a wish while he's getting his portrait painted that he wishes that he could stay young forever and that his portrait could age instead. And then lo and behold, that's what happens. And through a series of events, he decides, Dorian decides that he's just going to live this kind of wanton life of hedonism. He's going to be this kind of dilettante. He's going to be a libertine. There were a bunch of passages about Openly being homosexual and experiencing homosexual desires that Oscar Wilde had to cut from the serial version, the first printing of the serial that he was putting out, that have since been, like, rediscovered and you can read them if you want. But because of censorship laws and the illegality of homosexuality, a lot of the -the on-the-page queerness was cut out of the narrative. But by the end of the book... Basically, Dorian has realized that this life he has chosen is maybe not the best course. And in order to rectify himself, he decides he's going to destroy the painting. And I don't know, can you spoil a book that's like 150 years old? Spoiler alert for a picture (laughs) of Dorian Gray. (laughs) Spoiler alert if you didn't read it. He stabs the painting and he dies instead. His household staff comes to find him and on the floor is this withered old Like decrepit body. And the painting itself is a young, virile man looking like Dorian in his youth. So the story itself basically just has a lot to say about that kind of nature of living a double life and hiding kind of your quote unquote sin or your sinful lifestyle, to use really problematic terminology of the time in which Dorian Gray was written. The book itself is pretty room temperature. Those last 50-ish pages where he actually confronts his own portrait and basically unintentionally commit suicide by destroying it are a little terrifying. There's some pretty good descriptions of how the painting looks and kind of the way that the moral choices that he's made have embodied themselves on this painting. This is one of those examples where I don't necessarily know if like the -the on-the-page representation of queerness is the best, but knowing the outer context of like Oscar Wilde as an out queer author who was condemned for his homosexuality definitely puts the whole narrative in a different light, which I think is why looking at it in a more modernized reflection in the short story that I recommended is such an interesting like comparison and why I think doing the two together is such an incredibly interesting like both comment on the differences and similarities between the gay experience in the 1800s and in the 1980s so that's the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde go finally read it Oscar Wilde's awesome you guys can come find me on Twitter and I will give you lots of Oscar (laughs) Wilde feelings because I have them (laughs)
0: love it
1: that was one that threw me when you mentioned you were going to talk about it on the podcast episode because I wasn't aware that Wilde was a homosexual man. So that kind of blew my mind because I did a paper on that very book in high school and all of the subtext and everything went right over my little teenage head at the time.
2: Yep, I mean, that's understandable. You know, one of the things about queer narratives and there was, hmm, there's a Twitter thread on it and I'll see if I can find it and link it to you guys in the show notes. Basically talking about how so much of queer narratives throughout history have been built on subtext. And so now we get to the time where they don't have to do that anymore. But we're still not used to seeing them as actual text. So we still end up queer coding a lot of these things that we're just used to seeing as like the subtextual visual language of queer narratives. So I do think that that's a really interesting kind of thing that comes with looking at queer narratives is it's one of those things that's usually written into the subtext the older you go and the more you look for like into the classics the more that you'll find those queer narratives kind of hidden in between the lines so to speak
0: that's really interesting one of the books that we were going to talk about but I think we capped it off at three also kind of fits with that more of a modern classic but the haunting of hill house it's very coded in that way that you have to read into one of the characters being a lesbian Yeah, but she's definitely a lesbian. Definitely.
2: That's a a wonderful (laughs) book. That's another good one. Shirley Jackson is. Oh, she's amazing.
1: Now I want to talk about a more modern novel, and that is One Bloody Thing After Another by Joey Camo. This is a story of a teenage girl named Jackie who really likes her best friend Annie and wants to start dating her. Annie is also interested in Jackie. However, things are a bit complicated because she's very worried about her mother who has gotten quote unquote sick. She has grown extra teeth and become voraciously hungry and her mother has refused to eat anything that's already dead. As a result, Annie and her sister have resorted to chaining up their mother in the basement and are trying to find ways to feed her while keeping themselves safe. So as usual... All of my books always have ridiculous synopsis and this one was a lot of fun. It's a very short book with a very busy narrative that has some great lesbian representation because while you're dealing with this whole situation with this crazy mother who is just out of control looking to feed on anything living, you also have this really sweet story about two young women. Again, like my other short story I mentioned where they like each other and are interested in dating and it's just part of the story it's never an issue or a concern that they are attracted to each other. It's just simply the way it is. And that was a very sweet part of the story. But I have to caution you that I would actually put this book in the freezer because it has some really dark and disturbing scenes in it. I don't want to spoil anything, but it's very bloody and gruesome if you are bothered by harm to animals stay away but the romance again is really nice so you just have to be okay with some really dark horror content thrown in there and that again is one bloody thing after another by joey camo
2: that sounds so
0: great (laughs) that sounds like a rachel book
2: oh it's so rachel book (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) i listened to enough episodes of your podcast that that sounds yes accurate that sounds like a rachel book (laughs) it's like what what are you talking about My next one. Okay, so this is a Chelsea book. This book is like atmospheric and gothic horror to the max. It's Affinity by Sarah Waters. And Sarah Waters also wrote Fingersmith and Tipping the Velvet, which are two other super, super awesome lesbian narratives. But they're not specifically horror. So don't want to talk about them here, but they're really great. I recommend Sarah Waters just like across the board. But Affinity is specifically about Margaret Peggy Pryor who after a failed suicide attempt, so trigger warnings, decides to become a lady visitor to a local women's prison. So basically a, and what it sounds like, a woman who goes and visits the prison and kind of talks to the inmates and makes rounds and tries to just bring a little bit of cheer to this very, very dark Victorian prison. And when she goes, the first time she meets Selina Dawes and Selena Dawes is a spiritualist who is in jail after a seance of hers goes horribly wrong, leaving one person dead and one person committed for insanity. So something is going on there clearly. And the more and more that Margaret spends time around Selena, the more she's kind of drawn into this world, first of like spiritualism, then of trying to figure out whether or not Selena is actually telling the truth. And at the same time, they're developing this really intense attraction to each other while being kept on opposite sides of the prison like guard bars they're literally (laughs) star-crossed so there's this really great kind of tension there that builds in a queer romance where they don't actually really get to like enact that in any way and so it's almost more of like this queer obsession it reminded me very much so of if you've ever seen the tv show hannibal and there's that kind of i mean it's not textually explicit in hannibal except for all the parts where it definitely is but (laughs) it's very much so this like obsession that border like attraction, obsession, convolution of things and kind of figuring out where the line between those two things are. At the same time, affinity is very dark. If you struggle with some of your own like mental health issues, anxiety or depression, I recommend reading this book in a very sunny place. (laughs) Maybe when you're not going through a particularly bad moment of that, because that's a lot of this book is the building atmosphere of this like dark, Dim, dank, oppressive places that just kind of slowly becomes your world and closes around you, and like, eh, this is terrifying. So, for me, I put this one in the freezer because it was very scary. <laughs> but I also really love spiritualism. If things like seances or ghost readings, palmistry, any of those kind of more occult sciences interest you, this is a really, really interesting take on a person who does that. <laughs> Or maybe doesn't. I'll leave it to you guys to read and find out. But again, that's Affinity by Sarah Waters.
0: That sounds really good. I definitely want to read Sarah Waters.
2: It's really great.
0: I started with The Little Stranger and I didn't gel with it. And a lot of people messaged me and told me like, no, you should read either like Affinity or Fingersmith.
2: Fingersmith is great. Fingersmith is about basically like a lesbian pickpocket. And Tipping the Velvet is about the circus, I believe. It's been a very long time since I've read that one, but I'm pretty sure it's about performers in the circus or in like a traveling carnival or something of some kind.
0: They all sound amazing,
2: so I'll have to pick one up. All of her books are (laughs) super queer. So yeah, I definitely recommend Sarah Waters.
0: And my last pick that I am picking is one that I have talked about quite a lot. I know, I'm aware. But if this is someone who is tuning into this episode for the first time, then we can talk about it. So that is Let the Right One In by John Adita Lindquist. The synopsis for this story is Oscar lives in a Swedish suburb in the 1980s, and he is severely bullied by his classmates. He meets a girl in his apartment building who seems very strange, and she only comes out at night, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> 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 what are you trying to say there, Stephanie? <laughs> Did you guess that this was a vampire story? <laughs> so... This is an interesting take on a vampire story because there's a lot of think pieces about this book because of the asexual nature of Ellie as a character in this story. And because vampires in literature are usually, you know, very sexual and sensual and they use that, you know, as a tool to feed or they're used as symbols for, you know, sexuality (laughs) in literature. So the fact that this doesn't have that is very fascinating. So Ellie and Oscar's relationship, you know, is not sexual. There is a scene where Oscar asks Ellie to be his girlfriend. And she says that she's not really a girl. And in the movie adaptation, that's the all the information you get is she just says, like, like, I'm not really a girl. And then he's like, all right. And then, like, it's never talked about again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the book, you do get a little more backstory as to, like, what that means with her being a kind of non-binary character, but kind of outwardly appearing as a girl and being referred to in the book as a she so most people point out, I don't remember if this is in the book, but this is the movie that there is a scene where they are laying in bed together in their underwear and they're just, you know, there wasn't anything there. So it was mm-hmm. very interesting. If you are looking for, you know, an, an asexual representation in a novel, this is one that people usually point to and is very fascinating. And as I've mentioned, one of my all time favorites, because I talk about it way too much on this podcast. So I promise I will temper my love and this is a fridge freezer book there's a lot of body horror there is a pedophilia and very graphic depictions of bullying so again not for everyone it is very dark and it goes some very dark places so keep that in mind
2: that sounds wonderful i have almost entirely skipped like nordic horror so i should like remedy that that sounds like a wonderful way to do it.
0: Yeah. And the Swedish movie adaptation is also amazing.
2: Wonderful.
1: So finally, we want to end the episode talking about some of our chilling obsessions. And I'm really excited about this one that I have. I purposely wanted to talk about it in this episode because it has a queer aspect to it. We don't necessarily match our obsessions with the episode topic, but I wanted to do that in this case. And that is a fiction podcast called Gone, which is written and narrated by Sunny Moraine. And this is so good. I'm so happy to have a recommendation for a horror fiction podcast because normally that's Stephanie's place and you're always the one to find these amazing ones. So I don't think you've listened to this one yet. So I'll tell you guys about it. Yes. Yes. I was hoping to find that like underhyped one that you hadn't heard of. You have never heard of it. That sounds great. So this, as I mentioned, is done by Sunny Moraine. And she's the author of a whole bunch of speculative fiction that always has a bit of a queer bent to it. And I definitely want to check out her books after this. But she writes, narrates, and produces the entire podcast herself. And the production value is amazing. I had no idea until I looked up some details that she did it all herself. The premise is that the main character wakes up one morning to find that everyone else in the world has mysteriously vanished overnight. There is no sign of a struggle. Everyone is simply just gone and not just in her neighborhood. But as far as she can tell, there is no one out there. She is checked on the internet. She's reached out to people by phone, by text, everything she can think of. And no one is responding. Nothing live is happening on the radio, nothing like that. And it's just her by herself trying to figure out what happens. She's a big fan of those found footage movies so she decides to tape record herself basically explaining what's happening which is kind of how the podcast comes about and it doesn't feel cheesy at all even if you're not a big fan of that style it just feels very realistic why you would have someone kind of talking to themselves kind of reassuring themselves as they go along. And I just love it. I'm only actually a few episodes in. I made myself stop because I didn't want to recommend this after I had gotten to the end because I really didn't want to spoil anything. At this point, I have no idea what's happening. I don't know if there are aliens, if she's dead, if it's a dream. I have absolutely no idea where it's going, but I'm completely hooked. And the reason I wanna mention in this episode is that the narrator is a married lesbian and she talks about her female partner quite a bit. She talks about the experience of coming out to her family. And I just really like that representation. Not only that, but she also suffers from social and generalized anxiety, which is very difficult to have when you are the last person in the world so this is in some ways a horror podcast but in a lot of ways it deals with some very human issues dealing with themes of loneliness fear and isolation and i was completely completely hooked into the narrative i really want to get back to it like i said i kind of made myself pause just because i didn't want to be recommending it with any bias and kind of hint at what the angle is but i want to know what's happening it's just so well done it's very anxious inducing in a way so i wouldn't recommend listening to it if you're having a anxious day yourself but it's just so compelling i just put myself in her shoes and thought oh my gosh what would i do what is happening is this the rapture what is going on so that again is a podcast called gone which is all done by sunny moraine and i highly highly recommend it it is literally my current obsession
0: that sounds amazing it sounds so creepy
1: you both would love it like i cannot recommend this one enough
2: that like found footage like style but like audio just sounds like it would be so creepy and so good
1: Yeah, like I feel like I'm brilliant to have found this underhyped podcast that neither (laughs) of you
2: know about. Oh, and I love fiction podcasts. Yeah. I listen to a ton of podcasts, but not nearly enough, like fiction ones. So I'm always glad to find more.
1: Yeah. And every time I think I find one that's like new and I've never heard of, Stephanie's like, oh, yeah, I've been listening to that one for years.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) this is a rare moment for me. So my next pick is a movie that I had heard about and I wanted to see, but it really wasn't anywhere near me when it came out and it finally came on hulu and i was so excited this is tragedy girls and this follows two high school girls who run a true crime blog called tragedy girls and they are very obsessed with their branding and their social media and eventually they start committing murders to boost the traffic to their blog It's a very dark comedy because then at first, like, the murders all seem like an accident, so they're trying to get this hype that there's, like, a serial killer loose, but everyone just keeps writing off these murders as accidental, and it's very dark humor. In one of the trailers, I thought it had a perfect description. It said, like, Scream meets Heathers, and I thought that was the perfect way to describe it. So the two actresses who are the main characters have actually played X-Men. And first one, Sadie, she's the actress on Deadpool who plays Negasonic Teenage Warhead.
2: I love her so much.
0: (laughs) She's amazing in it. And then Michaela played Storm in the X-Men Apocalypse movie. And so they're like the two best friends who run this blog and... They are just amazing. There's obviously some commentary about an obsession to social media. And also uh, the cast in this movie is fantastic. You have Craig Robinson from The Office. You have Josh Hutcherson. It was just amazing. I was laughing. But obviously to enjoy it, you have to be okay with just like very dark humor. Like, you know, obviously jokes and flippancy about murder. You know, that whole deal. And as a slasher, it's great. There's some really cool kills. It's really awesome. So I definitely recommend that if you're a fan of dark comedies and slashers. So that's Tragedy Girls. And right now it is available on Hulu. I need to check that out. Yes. I text you. I was like, you would
2: love this.
1: I'm still trying to figure out how to watch it. I hate living in Canada sometimes. I can't find it anywhere. Oh, I'm so sorry.
2: That sounds a lot like, have you guys seen Santa Clarita Diet, the Netflix TV show with Drew Barrymore? I started
1: it. It's fun.
2: (laughs) It's so good. It's very much so the similar like dark humor. It's a take on like zombies, but it's very much so like dark humor and almost like comic levels of gore. It's got Drew Barrymore and Timothy Oliphant in it. It sounds very much so in like the similar vein. So I think if you liked one, you'd probably like the other one.
0: Uh, Definitely. I'll have to check it out. It's definitely been on my like to watch list, but I'll have to actually get to it.
2: It's wonderful. I love Drew Barrymore. I love Timothy Oliphant. I love, I usually don't love zombie stories, but I loved that one. I thought it was very well done. I'll go ahead and just keep talking, as is apparently my style. While you're on Netflix, you can go ahead and check out either one of my current obsessions. So I talked at the top of the podcast how, like, my Venn diagram of overlap and the true crime is, like, a big part of that. So I am obsessed with the show Mind Hunter. <laughs> Me too. That's a Netflix original. Have you guys seen it? Yes, yes, it's filmed here in Pittsburgh. I'm living in Kansas, and nothing is filmed here. <laughs> I'm super jealous. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Mindhunter stars Jonathan Groff as Holden Ford, Holt McCallany as Bill Tench, and Anna Torv as Wendy Carr, who are basically the two male FBI agents and the one female psychologist who together founded the Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico, which is serial killers. It's the people who go and make profiles or have made profiles of serial killers. This show basically covers the formation of that unit, how they had to conduct all these interviews and all this research with these famous serial killers to kind of prove that there was a reason for the US government to create this group of experts, basically kind of proving that there is a science of behavior that can help us to predict future people who want to do these same kinds of things. The show is really interesting because it's obviously a fictional account of a real life thing. So they have some really amazing actors coming on reading or acting out the dialogue of these interview transcripts. So all of the dialogue is lifted like straight from the mouths of these people in these transcripts and the acting is so spot on and it's like oh they talk to ed kemper they talk to jerry brutos and richard speck and it's just it's deeply creepy in that way of like hearing CEO oh, your colors talk about the really really messed up things that they've done to people so all of the trigger warnings for that but Also, along with that is I also really like procedural television. I find procedural television really, really calming. I do too. We're your people. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) We get you. Thank you. Thank you. Like most people would look at me very oddly if I'm like, yeah, at the end of a long day, I just really like to go home and put on Law & Order SVU. Or it's like, I really just like to relax with some Criminal Minds. But that's what I'm doing. So Criminal Minds is currently airing. It airs on CBS. They just picked it up for its 14th season. But you can find, I think, the first 12 seasons on. Netflix, and it is basically a fictional show about the current legacy keepers basically of Holden Ford and Bill Tench as they use their sometimes mostly accurate behavioral psychological science to catch fictional serial killers. And it's really great. Both Mindhunter and Criminal Minds have out queer cast members, although none of the characters that they play are queer. So that's always great for queer actors to be working in Hollywood, even if unfortunately it's not with queer narratives. So Yeah, and then I'll just say it again. If you haven't listened to All Be Gone in the Dark, if you are not aware of what's going on with the Golden State Killer, just like go check that out. Go spend some time on Twitter. Go read the book. It's just so fascinating if like true crime or serial killers or any of that is at all your like space. Definitely go check it out. You probably already have. If serial killers are your thing, you've probably already read All Be Gone in the Dark. But just in case you haven't yet, it's really good.
1: Those are all so good. Yeah, I love my hunters. Criminal Minds was like my jam in high school. Like me and my mom would like watch it in like an evening I wanted to be a criminologist when I was younger I still do I kind of wonder why I got
2: like a boring day job that isn't dark and twisty I know right that's one of the shows that make you just be like man I know that I'm a grown-up now but like when I'm a grown-up I want to go to school to work there exactly (laughs) but no oh man like I love that show (laughs) Jonathan Groff is an out gay man who just does not play a heterosexual man very well and if i just had to say something about that show it would just be like the attempted sexual chemistry between him and his like girlfriend slash fiance is just like not it's
1: like nope
2: <laughs> that's not the thing to watch for friends watch for the creepy interviews with the serial killers don't watch for the romance because it's just not well
0: then like the on a tour of storyline is like eh.
2: <laughs> which i mean color me shocked that the lady storyline just doesn't go anywhere but that's fine that's a whole different <laughs> podcast everyone on the show is wonderful that's it's incredibly well cast all the people that they get to come in and do the reenactments of these serial killers oh my gosh like i'm so impressed but also i would hate to be that person who's like you did such a good job playing ed kemper like (laughs) oh is that a compliment like thanks i guess (laughs) well we should probably let people go (laughs) (laughs) oh probably
1: so thank you so much for joining us chelsea before we let you go where can people find you online
2: Absolutely. Well, like we said, I co-host my own podcast every other Monday. Not Now I'm Reading, you can find us at patreon.com slash nnirpodcast. And that site also has links to all of our other Twitter and homepage and everything like that. If you're looking for me specifically, you can go to chelseaoutlaw.com. That's where I have all my writing, editing services, all my personal contact info, all of that. You can get in touch with me there. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at an outlaw life and I'm always there. It's probably unhealthy, but I'm pretty much always there.
0: We'll leave the links for everything in the show notes so
2: people can find you. Perfect. And thank you, ladies, so much for having me. This has been an absolute delight. I had so much fun finding things to wreck and doing some revisiting stuff. And it was wonderful.
0: It was so fun chatting with you. Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer or you can email us at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. You can find show notes for this episode and all previous episode at booksinthefreezer.com. We're on Patreon as Books in the Freezer. And a special thank you to our patrons, Laura, Liz, Devin, Sarai, Roger, Emily, Denise, Anthony, Elizabeth, Sean, Mitch, Alicia, and PT. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at lady underscore or on YouTube as That's What She Read.
1: And I'm Rachel. You can find me on Twitter at shades underscore orange or on YouTube
0: and Instagram at the shades of orange. So join us next time for Books in the Freezer.